Amen. 1 Samuel chapter 9, and just reading simply from verses 1 through 27. Follow along with me, if you will, please. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Bekorath, son of Aphia, a Benjamite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upwards, he was taller than any of the people. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish sent his son, sent to Saul, his son, take one of the young men with you and arise. Go and look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalisha. They did not find them. And they passed through the land of Shalim, but they were not there. Then they passed through the land of Benjamin, but did not find them. When they came to the land of Zuth, Saul said to his servant, who was with him, come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. But he said to him, behold, there is a man of God in the city, and he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true. So now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. Then Saul said to his servant, but if we go, what can we bring the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone, and there is no present to bring to the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered Saul again, Here, I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, Come, let us go to the seer. For today's prophet was formerly called a seer. And Saul said to his servant, Well said, Come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. As they went up, to the, up the hill to the city, they met young women coming out to draw water and said to them, Is the seer here? They answered, he is. Behold, he is just ahead of you. Hurry, he's come just now to the city, because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. As soon as you enter the city, you will find him, before he goes up on the high place to eat, for the people will not eat till he comes, since he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now go up, for you will meet him immediately. So they went up to the city. As they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow about this time I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me where is the house of the seer? Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me on the high place, for today you shall eat with me. And in the morning I will let you go, and will tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set them, your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? Saul answered, Am I not a Benjaminite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? Then Samuel took Saul and his young man and brought them into the hall and gave them a place at the head of those who had been invited, who were about 30 persons. And Samuel said to the cook, Bring the portion I gave you, of which I said to you, put it aside. So the cook took up the leg and what was on it and set them before Saul. And Samuel said, See, what was kept is set before you. Eat, because it was kept for you until the hour appointed, that you might eat with the guests. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. 
And when they came down from the high place into the city, a bed was spread for Saul on the roof, and he lay down to sleep. Then at the break of dawn, Samuel called to Saul on the roof, Up, that I may send you on your way. So Saul arose, and both he and Samuel went out into the street. As they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servant to pass on before us. And when he has passed on, stop here yourself for a while, that I may make known to you the word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, that's the story. Our title this morning comes from what the Lord revealed to Samuel about this Saul guy. That he would be the one who would save Israel and restrain Israel. It's a very interesting word usage for the ESV here, which we'll talk about in a moment. But this is a very ordinary sounding story to begin with, at least, isn't it? In one sense, you could look at this and say, this is the story of a man who went to find donkeys and came home without them. Obviously, we know something else happened in there. But as far as Kish is concerned, that being Saul's father, Saul went out to get the donkeys and seemingly came back without them. Not just seemingly, he actually did. As Saul is looking for donkeys, we know from the context of 1 Samuel that God's people are looking for a king. And they get the donkey hunter. I don't know if that's exactly what anybody called him at any time. But that's what I've kind of referred to him in this past week in my own mind. The donkey hunter. And as I think about the donkey hunter, I think about the fact that the donkey hunter is a bad donkey hunter. Because he never does find those donkeys. And yet God finds him as he's hunting donkeys... And rather than simply saying, here's your donkeys, go home, and I'm going to pretend like you don't exist anymore. He says, I'm going to send the donkeys home on my own. Don't worry about them. And I'm going to give you a place of authority over all my people. It's funny how the everyday things of life mingle in with the plans of God. Usually we don't see this until we have hindsight for it, though, right? How many of us right now could say, I know exactly what God's doing in my life. In the ordinary goings-on of my life, I can see clearly what God's doing. That's not typically what we talk about. What we talk about is what we've seen him do, what we hope he will do in the future, and how we are clueless about what he's doing right now. And I think that's part of the significance of the donkey hunter. He's just looking for donkeys. I doubt Saul woke up that day and said, maybe I'll become king today. No, he woke up and he said, "Ah, today's the day I got to go find those donkeys. How do you feel about roundabouts? You like them, you don't like them? In one sense, they've replaced some intersections. The lights are now gone and it's a free-for-all. And for some of you excited drivers, let's say, it might be a good thing. It might be, I got to wait for nobody. If I just send the message that I'm going, then it's their fault if they mess up, right? getting on that roundabout. You know, we had one back home. It's still there, actually, oddly enough. It's called the Talmadge Circle. I can't remember. Are there like six or eight different roads? (laughs) It feels like a lot, yeah. 
but it is, it's the most congested place in Northeast Ohio, in my memory at least. And nobody ever knows what to do when they get up to it. At one point, I found one guy, this is a one-way roundabout, of course, right? I, we found one guy going the opposite direction on the roundabout, which was obviously the worst thing you can do. But when you get onto a roundabout, you are merging in, you are really getting life on life with everybody else and figuring out who's a good driver or not, who listens to the rules, who's timid, who doesn't know, whatever. The best thing you can do when you come to a roundabout is to find that there's nobody else there, right? It's like, oh, this is going to be really easy, right? And hopefully you don't, like some people I know, I'm talking about myself, you don't get stuck on the roundabout forgetting that you're supposed to exit and now you got to make another lap because that's just embarrassing, isn't it? I missed that one, and somebody's watching me, I know. And they're going, he just passed that, and now he's coming back, and now he changed his mind. It's, it can be a confusing time, but I think that in one sense, the roundabout, though it wasn't created with this purpose in mind, I'm sure, I think the roundabout has given us one of the best illustrations. Okay, not one of the best illustrations, but obviously the best one I could come up with this Sunday. Of how we see the intersection of God's sovereign will and my free choice coming together. And sometimes there's a little bit of panic. And sometimes you hope that there's nobody else on the roundabout. But this is what's happening for Saul the donkey hunter. He is jumping on the roundabout of life, and God is on there too. Saul's plan is to get off at the exit that takes him to the donkeys. God's plan is to have him miss that exit entirely, quite a few times, and end up being anointed as king in Israel. I know you like maps. And if this works, I'll show you one. There it is. Did you do that or did I do that? I did that. Thanks. I got the power. So, this is a map <laughs> of what we can kind of imagine Saul's journey was. Now, again, this, I'm laughing because, you know, we, I, we had a conversation this past week someone else and I, about how great maps are. And I'm like, I should probably put a map in. Well, the only map for this passage is Saul looking for the donkeys. This is his roundabout, okay? So there's two possible routes. The um, solid arrows are what we think are the probable route that Saul took, and the um, dotted arrows is the possible route. And, And honestly, the more you learn about Saul, you wouldn't put it past him that he might look clear out in Jabin for some lost donkeys that he think could have traveled that far in such a little bit of time. But it seems, if my map skills serve me correctly, that he could have traveled something like 50 miles in this passage looking for these donkeys. Very interesting. That in this context, in this journey, that really was just to end up with him coming home and saying, Dad, here are the donkeys. What we'll find next week, Lord willing, is that he'll come back with a very secret message about himself. And he'll find the donkeys already at home. So let's look a little bit more at the passage here. And remember that we're coming off of chapter 8, where God's people, as we said with the kids, have asked for a king. They would like a king to rule over them. And not just any king, but a king like all the nations have. And I would point out again this morning that the request for a king was not necessarily a bad thing. It was the qualifier that they put on there. We see the kings around us, and we want one like them. God's people will always run into major trouble when they ask for something the way the world has it. 
And church, we're not asking the Lord for a king like the nations, right? We see the nations pretty well today. And I don't know if any of us look and go, we need that guy. I don't know if you can find a that guy, right? But there may be other things in our hearts that we're asking God for, and we're basing that request off of what the world has, or perhaps simply just what the world values. But when we jump on the roundabout of life, of everyday life, with our free choice to make decisions, to make plans, and follow through with them as the Lord wills, we find that God has some larger plans in mind. And in some cases, like in this, he will answer those worldly prayers, even though it's going to bring about a different purpose than the askers asked for. Asking is all prayer means, by the way. Did you know that? Prayer just simply means to ask. It's the base level understanding of what prayer really is, asking God for something. And when they asked for a king, God gave them Saul, whose name means, you'll never guess it, the one asked for. It's really tempting to just title this sermon, Getting What You Asked For. Because that's exactly what they got. Now, interestingly enough, Samuel's name also comes from that same root of asked for. But do you remember who asked for Samuel? It was Hannah, the mother, who wasn't a mother, right? She was barren. And she was living in this situation where she was constantly reminded of her lack of motherhood in her life. In a culture that, in one sense, almost demanded it. And it would have been very easy for her to take the worldly standard around her and pray, Lord, give me a child like the nations, like everyone else around me. Make me like them. But instead, she has a humbling experience before the Lord in worship. She surrenders her heart to God's will and not her own, and she receives Samuel, who, let's face it, he turned out great, right? He was a hero, the judge of Israel, a prophet of God, a priest. I mean, this guy had more on his resume than anybody we've seen in Scripture to this point. In some ways, you might even say greater than Moses. But whereas we see that humble mother asking for a son, now we move into what happens when a nation asks for a king. And when they ask for a king like the world around them has. Hopefully we've set it up plenty at this point. Let's talk about what Saul's like. In every other instance, when we see a description of somebody in 1 Samuel, that is these main characters. When Samuel grows up, we see things like he's growing in the Lord. He's ministering before the Lord. He's doing good things. But look at the description we get of Saul in the beginning. If you would look at verse 2. Kish had a son whose name was Saul. And this son is mentioned in verse 2 right after a nice little genealogy. And I literally mean nice little genealogy, right? Because it's it's one verse, right? You go through Numbers and Leviticus and you're like, this is tough. This is a lot of generations here. We just get the abbreviated version for Saul. It's a nice little genealogy. But the world would have seen that as nice too. Oh, you know who your dad is. You know who your dad's dad is. You know who his dad is. Back several generations. There is a family motif here that has come into play with what we know of Saul. But what's the second thing we know about him? He's handsome. He's a good-looking guy. What's the third thing? He's tall. Now, when you describe people, 
If you're introducing someone, or if you're talking about someone, you're trying to say, yeah, there's this person, right? Well, they, they do this. It's very easy to go into descriptions. You know, I'm, I'm one of the easiest people to describe. The bald guy who talks on Sunday morning, right? It, it makes it a little easier. Generally, we, we like to use, you know, he has dark hair, he has no hair, he has a beard, you know, whatever, to describe people. But when it comes to the narrative that we're in right here, this is not just a simple way of telling the readers, like, Oh, you know him, right? He's the tallest one. He's the most handsome one. He has a good lineage. He's also wealthy. That doesn't really help us understand who Saul is because we can't put our eyes on him. So that's not what God's word's trying to tell us here. God's word isn't trying to point Saul out in the crowd because we can't see him. What the, the word of the Lord is showing us in Saul's description is that something is missing, and it is his character. His character is not listed here. He does not have a reputation before both God and man, as we saw with Samuel. But in verses 4 through 5, he's searching. He's searching for the donkeys, and at one point in that very long journey, which let's give him a break here for a second, he, he might have gone about 50 miles when he finally said, I give up, they're just donkeys. And he even says something that sounds very compassionate. Let's go home. My dad's probably worried about us more than the donkeys at this point. But he's still kind of giving up. Oh, we can give him a break for one, for one thing, but as we look at the whole of 1 Samuel, that might come into play later on as we look at his life. Let's keep that in mind. In verses 11 through 14, we have this change. In this everyday activity of looking for donkeys, the servant says, hey, there's a seer. That is somebody who God speaks to, who sees the future, who sees things that we can't see. Let's go talk to him. And Saul says, well, I've got no money. Saul seems a little unprepared, doesn't he? I've got nothing to give the seer. We have this nice little note here in verse 9 about how today's prophet was formerly called a seer. We get the context here that the normal expectation was if you wanted to talk to the prophet, you needed to bring him a present. And while if you ever want to talk to the pastor, you can bring presents, that's fine. But you don't have to, okay? But back then, this was the normal expectation. And Saul was completely unprepared to step into the spiritual realm of his situation in life because he was just a donkey hunter. But his servant goes, you know, God knows where these donkeys are. Why not ask him? And the servant ends up being the one who's prepared. He has a half shekel of silver that he can give to the seer. So they head over there, and they have another, their first interesting encounter. Now, when you meet women going out to get water, that's a significant thing that happens in Scripture. Can you think of other stories where women are met getting water, and they end up in things like weddings or huge towns coming to know who Jesus Christ is in the case of the um, Samaritan woman. Uh, there's, there's times in the Old Testament we, we see the patriarchs finding their wives there. Uh, this is a, an ordinary setting that we know from our fuller picture of God's word is where extraordinary things happen. These women, at verse 11, they seem very ready and very able to give directions to Saul. Here's where the seer's going to be. There's a sacrifice coming up. Get there before then. He, they won't start the sacrifice until he gets there. You can find him there. You need to hurry. Blah, blah, blah. It's as if they were standing there waiting to tell Saul all these instructions. I imagine they weren't because they were going through an ordinary rhythm of life. Saul was looking for donkeys. They were going to fill up their water pitchers. 
And yet in both these instances, God puts them on the roundabout of everyday life and melds into that his sovereign will to bring about this pretty incredible thing. So he, they meet these women at the well. They give instructions to Saul and his servant for how to find the seer. And as we transition over to Samuel and what Samuel has experienced, we see in verse 16 that the Lord has already spoken to Samuel about Saul. He says, tomorrow's the day. You're going to meet somebody. Be ready. He gives instructions to Samuel to expect this man, Saul. And of course, Samuel does. And that's where Samuel is told that this man is going to be a savior. He's going to save God's people from the Philistines. And then, in verse 17, at once Samuel actually sees Saul, the Lord tells him, here's the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. A savior and a restrainer. Now, if you have a different translation, this kind of threw me for a loop this past week. If you have a different translation, that word restrainer might just say rule or reign or those kinds of things. If you want to make me feel better, you can nod inquisitively if you want. Um, it's, it's an interesting word that's used here. The typical word for rule or reign or king is the word melech in Hebrew. But this word that's used is not melech. And it's actually, perhaps in some ways, and this is a plug for the ESV. I'm sorry, you can use whatever translation you want. But the ESV seems to get to something that we don't see in the English by saying that he will restrain my people. Certainly we would expect the king to rule. But why this word restrain? We'll see in a moment. Samuel, while we've been given Saul's description physically, Samuel is not putting his hope in Saul's physical description. He's putting his hope in the appointment that God is giving to Saul. Not his appearance, but his appointment. And interestingly, as Saul comes to Samuel, the seer, Saul doesn't see what's going on at all. He doesn't see the donkeys, which is all he cares about. And when Samuel says, hey, forget about the donkeys, they're fine. For you, all that is desirable in Israel. Saul doesn't see that either. Very confused. Very out of touch. Very out of tune. In verse 21, he brings up something very important. If you remember from our study in Judges, that in the end of the book of Judges, it was the tribe of Benjamin that incited a civil war with the other tribes. Benjamin was not a loved tribe amongst the 12 tribes of Israel. They started a civil war over a very unfortunate circumstance. You can read more about that in Judges chapter 20 if you're curious. But he says, hey, who am I? I'm not supposed to be the king, all these kinds of things. And then we end our passage with Samuel saying, tomorrow I will reveal to you the word of the Lord. That Ultimately, that's his answer to Saul's inability, his, his disqualification. I'm going to reveal the word of the Lord to you. We know as God's people that God's word is given to us so that we might know who he is, what he's doing, and that we might be transformed by that knowledge. And that is truly what Saul needs. He needs to trust what God is doing through his everyday life, and he needs to hear the word of God so that that might be revealed to him. And so do we. But there's a conflict here. The conflict, of course, is that worldly standard from chapter 8. It's carried over into the next chapter in chapter 9 here. See, they had asked for Saul, and they got what they asked for. They asked for worldly standards, and it is going to be a conflict for the character formation of this king and the character formation for the kingdom as well. 
Again, we're not told about Saul's character in any of this. And as much as it is important for us to see what God's word does say, it's also important for us at times to see what God's word does not say. When God's word is silent on something, that doesn't mean it's unimportant. Certainly, the writer is not saying, hey, God thought he was a pretty cool dude. He was tall, handsome, rich, and had a good lineage. Kingly material in the world's eyes. We'll come in the future months, Lord willing, to 1 Samuel 16, where another king is chosen to replace Saul, and we'll see the full message come about. This is what's so hard about preaching one chapter. What are y'all doing later today? Do you want to just go to chapter 16? We could start. I'm totally kidding. Read through it, though. See what's coming, because it's hard to cover it all in one. We're not supposed to. But Saul's character's gone. It's a, it's a very unfortunate contrast to Samuel's description that we've had in these eight chapters so far. And yet Saul is the one who is going to save and restrain. Again, the ESV translates that Hebrew word as restrain. It means to reign over, but it also means to hold back. Because Israel was asking for a worldly kind of king, that king was going to become a barrier between Israel and the goodness of their God. And the barrier would be the character of Saul. And as we've seen it thus far, the lack of character. Again, he doesn't really do anything explicitly wrong in chapter 9. But he doesn't wow us in the way a king should wow us in the beginning. Think again, think future-wise about David. What do we learn about David before he becomes king? He's a shepherd. Saul is a donkey hunter who can't catch donkeys. David is a shepherd who keeps his sheep and fights off things like lions and bears and tigers. Oh my, no tigers. But he does, he defends his flock. He's notable, not only in his action, but in his character, because God says, I'm going to look at his heart and see that he has a heart after my own. It has not mentioned about Saul whatsoever because worldly standards have been used to appoint him. This obviously, this message has great implications for us politically, and I don't like talking politically, so I'm not going to, but I would say at least that, that as we choose who we vote into offices and things like that, we, we focus so little on the character of the person anymore. We look so much at their actions, we look at their attitude, but we don't think on their character. And that's a, that's a, that's a judgment, I think, on every political party. We care less about who people are and care more about what they can do for us rather than who they will point us to. Again, Saul's character will be a barrier between Israel and the goodness of God. As he merges onto the roundabout, God is merging him into his sovereign plan. And as we heard from Gideon already this morning, God's going to teach Israel a lesson about the kind of king that they choose. A couple weeks ago, Ligonier Ministries had a really great um, preaching conference. And one of my favorite living preachers this was, was there. His name's Vodi Bakum. He preached on 1 John 2, 15 through 17, which is all about not loving the world because the things of the world are passing away and whoever loves the things of the world does not love God. There's a conflict there. And so he says this, this mentioning, this command to not love the world is not God saying, there's good stuff I want to keep from you. It is a commandment that says, 
that looks good to you, that thing that is in the world and not of me, that looks good to you, and it may even feel good to you, but in the end, you will perish. Vodi goes on to say, I am calling you away from it because I actually love you. And in loving you, I want you to abide in God, remain in God, and to not perish. That is God's message through 1 John chapter 2 about not loving the things of the world. And I think it's his message to us as well as Israel is looking for a worldly king. Again, 1 Samuel 16, 17. God does not look at the outward. He looks at the heart. God doesn't care if you're tall and handsome and wealthy and have a full head of hair or whatever. Your appearance matters little compared to the character of your heart. So I would ask you, church, this morning, especially on a communion Sunday, where we ought examine our hearts well before coming to the table, I would ask you, what worldly standards influence your life in Christ? When you merge onto the roundabout of your everyday life, what are you bringing with you? What is your GPS telling you? What is it telling you if you get off at this exit, things are going to go this way and you can seek after this worldly thing of success, comfort, freedom, whatever that thing might be? Or are you able to find your blind spots? Because Saul wasn't able to find his blind spots. He had to go to a seer because he could not see. He himself was blind. Those who are blind to God will only lead others to destruction when they're put in charge. Whereas in chapter 7, things were looking really good. If you remember a few weeks ago, Israel was returning to the Lord, coming back to him, repenting, trusting in him, doing things like praying and asking Samuel, don't cease to pray to the Lord our God for us. Now in chapter 8, we see a request for this king. And in chapter 9, we see the request fulfilled. Fulfilled. This is what you've asked for, Saul. Saul who has blind spots, just like you, just like Israel. And we cannot battle sin that we can't see. You know, the end of Saul's life, which is a little ways away in chapter 31. He's meant to save... Israel from the Philistines, and temporarily, yes, but long-term, no. Only David can do that. In 1 Samuel chapter 31 and verse 5, when Saul sees in his last battle that he's not going to defeat the Philistines, do you know what he does? He asks his servant to run his sword through him and end his life so that he doesn't face the shame of yet another loss. A servant won't do it. So Saul falls on his own sword. You know, in, um, in ancient Japanese culture, this would have been an honorable way to die. It was seen in that way as a warrior's death. But for Saul, it will not be a warrior's death. It's a coward's death. It would not be accepted the way that it's been accepted in different cultures as an honorable end. But rather, it was an admission of his defeat and his complete, utter lack of character. And what's scary about that is that while we read that, we go, well, that's the end of Saul. At least he's out of the picture. What does the armor bearer do? The exact same thing. You may not know how you're being influenced by the world around you, but you will know when you start acting like it. When the world's motives, actions, um, perceptions, and priorities start to show up in your own life, 
That's how we'll know that we, like Saul's armor bearer, are just following after a blind leader. So what do we need? A leader who can see a righteous king? See, Saul's appointment was not God's way of giving up on his people because in verse 16, as he's talking to Samuel, he says three times, my people. He has not let go of Israel even though they on the roundabout of life have decided to go a different direction. He's actually helped them along that different direction. And he still calls them my people. And what he's going to give Saul to be, again, remember that word um, for, that we have restrainer, is not the word melech, which means king, but it's more related to this word um, that's used in verse 16 as well, this idea of a prince over Israel, a leader. He says, these people are still my people, and even though they rejected me as their king, and they want someone else to be their king, I am still their king. Church, our only hope when we are giving into worldly influences, when we're following, following blind leaders, our only hope is that our true king will come and save us. Not by falling on his sword in defeat, but rather by laying down his life in our place. And that is what our true king does. No one was more handsome or tall than Saul, but there is no one more glorious than Jesus Christ. Isaiah 53 describes him as one who we couldn't even look at. He had no form or beauty that we could notice him. And when he walked on this earth 2,000 years ago, he was just another one of the guys. He wasn't the tallest, he wasn't the handsomest, but there was something different about him, and it was his character. It was who he was, not just what he looked like on the outside. Christ shows us in coming down to this earth that he is not far from us, but in bearing the cross of our worldliness, he saves us from the destruction that we deserve, from the end that Saul experienced that we are due for as well in our sin. But he not only saves us from that, he restrains us from it as well. Saul was meant to restrain in a way that was going to hold us back from God's blessing. But Christ restrains us from sin and brings us into God's blessing. He does the exact opposite. And he reveals to us that our desires are so warped that we are so confused about what we really want. And it's so easy to look at the world around us and say, I'd like a a nice house. I'd like a car that works. I'd like a family like that. I'd like a lawn like that. All those kinds of influences warp what our hearts truly need, which is Christ alone. In John 17, verse 6, Christ is praying for his people, not only his disciples then and there, but for all of his people to come. And I want you to hear these words again, though we, it wasn't too long ago that we were looking at these. But as Jesus is praying, listen to verse 6 of chapter 17. He says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. So one descriptor for God's people is we are out of the world, Right? We've been called out of it. That's actually what church means, if you're not sure. It comes from a Greek word that means called out of. You gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now listen to what he says in verse 15 of the same chapter. I do not ask that you take them out of the world. What? You just said we are out of the world. So he means it in two different ways. He means 
we are out of the world in that our character, our being, our life is not like the world around us. But then he says, I don't want you to take them out of the world. So this is where we get this idea that we say we are in the world, but not what? Of the world, right? So this is where we get that, at least one of the places. So he says in his prayer, Father, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. That doesn't mean that Satan can't touch us. That doesn't mean that Satan can't torment us and make our life a living hell as best as he possibly can. What it means is, is that his ultimate designs are completely failed before Christ. Don't take them out of the world, but keep them from the plans of the evil one. What is God the Father going to answer God the Son to that prayer request? The answer is absolutely yes and amen. You are kept from the evil one, church. If you are in Christ by faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, by grace alone, being saved, not by our own works, by our own worthiness. Saul was appointed because he looked good in the world's eyes. We're appointed to Christ because Christ looks good in God's eyes. He takes us out of the world in that we are transformed by the living word of God. But we're still here because we have a purpose. We'll get to that as we end in a moment. John 17, 17, Jesus says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify simply shows that the means of our being in but not of the world depends on the formation of Christ's character in our hearts. How is it that you will live this Christian life, church, in this world that is so opposed to Christ? Let the character of Christ be formed in you. That is what our true king saves and restrains us for. He saves and restrains us from the destruction of the worldliness, and he saves and he keeps us permanently in the love of God if we are in him. I love what John Newton said. You know John Newton because you sing his most famous song at every funeral you ever go to, Amazing Grace, right? John Newton said, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world, but still I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. I love that. Because on this journey, how easy is it to think, man, I should really be a better Christian. I should really know a lot more Bible verses. I should really be a more patient parent. I should really be the, no, Christ is all those should be's for you, church. In God's eyes, nothing that you do is going to count for your right standing with God because what Christ has done counts for your right standing with God. His patience, his knowledge of God's word, his church attendance, whatever the kind of things that we say. It is the character of Christ that stands in our place and he is sweeping us up into it as we go through the roundabout of life. Every moment he's forming you, church. He doesn't just do it on Sundays. He doesn't just do it when you open your Bible. He does it in your classrooms, in your workplaces, in your homes, in your kitchens, on the road, wherever you are. He is constantly transforming you, Paul says, from one degree of glory to the next. And sometimes it looks like we're going from here all the way to over here because, wow, we can see such a difference. And then the next day it's like, what are you doing, Lord? I don't see it. The plan isn't for you to see it every time, church. The plan is for you to trust his work. So three ways for us to surrender our character formation to Christ, and we'll end. First of all, fill your heart with the love of Christ. Go to his word. Meditate on his word. 
Soak it in. Think deeply of the gospel. Sing gospel songs, not only on Sunday morning, but when you're in the car driving crazy around the roundabout or wherever you might be. In Ephesians chapter 3, Paul prays that the church would be able to comprehend and know the love of God so that they might be filled with the fullness of God. That's a really big abbreviation because Paul writes big sentences in Ephesians. But he wants the church to comprehend, that is to understand and to know the love of God so that we can be filled with the fullness of him. You can have that, church. In those moments where the devil would love for us to think, like, you got nothing of God. He's not here. He doesn't care. That is so not true. Christ is in us and with us constantly. Fill your heart with his love. Secondly, strengthen your walk with the people of Christ. So first, fill your heart with the love of Christ. Secondly, strengthen your walk with the people of Christ. This is something that we'll just say the American church that we struggle with. Our faith is such a private thing. That's a worldly influence, by the way. Did you know that? The privatization of your faith. Christian faith is not privatized. Sorry. That's why I have a microphone (laughs) for one thing. But your faith is not to be privatized. It is not simply for you in the quietness in the dark corner of your life. It is for you to shout from the rooftops of wherever you are, not in an obnoxious and annoying way, but that your life would be, as it were, a billboard pointing to Jesus Christ. Strengthen your walk with people of Christ in order to do that. Hebrews 3.13 says, exhort one another. That is, encourage people with, with a priority and with almost a desperation. Exhort one another every day. Can you obey that command as you look at your schedule for the next week? This is from God's word. This is not me, but real. this hit me. Exhort one another every day. Well, how long are we supposed to do that? Because good grief, I got things to do. The writer says, as long as it's called today. A weird way to say all the time, but it's true. Is it today? Then exhort another believer in Christ. Point them to Christ. Point them to the salvation of Christ. Be used to restrain other brothers and sisters from sin. Not by casting judgment and making them feel small before you, but rather saying, look at the Savior. Look at what he's done. How could we live like the world around us when we have such a great treasure in Christ? That's what I need, church. I need brothers and sisters around me telling me those kinds of things, exhorting me every day. I believe it's what we all do need as well. Last thing, reach the lost around you with the gospel of Christ. Again, fill your heart with the love of Christ. Strengthen your walk with the people of Christ. Reach the lost around you with the gospel of Christ. And you got to do that in the ordinary when you're hunting donkeys. You're just doing that thing. You feel like there's no spiritual value to this at all. That's a lie. There's so much spiritual significance in your everyday job, everyday work. Not that you need to stop doing a good job at whatever your job is and just constantly tell people about Jesus, but the way in which you do the work that God has appointed you for is a massive part of your testimony. And you need to be building yourself up in your most holy faith with each other, with the love of Christ in your heart, so that when the opportunity comes and somebody says, what is different about you? can point to the difference maker. Reach the lost around you with the gospel of Christ in the ordinary. Paul says in Romans 1.16, is a great memory verse, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is the power of God unto salvation. The mission requires the character of Christ. We receive that character through the power of the gospel. Telling someone, Christ, the very son of God, the innocent, spotless, perfect 
righteous Son of God has taken on flesh and taken the place of the most vile sinner, has taken all your sin upon you. Do you know what the heart of the gospel, what is so winsome about the gospel, is the character of Christ. It is who he is that is revealed in what he does. Proclaim that to the world around you.